Hello, it's episode six of How I Got This Gig. Today, I'm chatting long distance with my pal, Faisal Jais, a TV commercial director currently based in Malaysia. And during our conversation, Faisal talks about why he quit architecture school to study film. He also talks about his early career creating TV promos and launching cable TV channels and what it was like to meet his greatest influences in person. So sit back, relax, start the show. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Dean Rainey. Today we're going to be talking with TV commercial director Faisal Jice. Faisal and I are longtime friends. We used to work together in Hong Kong at the National Geographic Channel. And Faisal's got a great background in broadcast. He's worked with a lot of TV channels, a lot of cable channels. He's created promos for them and he's launched channels too. So he knows like how the whole thing works, how you start a channel from scratch and launch it. And then he's also got some great stories about um, creating content in programs like a movie program and, and doing the press junkets, you know, where you're part of an assembly line in a hotel and you get seven minutes in a suite with the stars or the makers of a movie and you've got to somehow pull out a really great interview. He's got some very interesting stories about that process. So that's all coming up soon. Hey, this episode of How I Got This Gig is sponsored by Videotwins.com, helping people make better videos. Check us out at Videotwins.com for tips, tricks, and resources to improve the quality of your video productions. Now, Videotwins.com is also the home base for this podcast, How I Got This Gig. And right now, we are giving away a chance to get a free 30-minute coaching call with either myself or my video twin, Berman Lamb. Now, this is a great chance for you to get expert advice on maybe some equipment you're thinking about buying, or maybe you're working on a video and you'd like a, a fresh set of eyes on it to give feedback, or maybe you're starting your own production company and you would like to get some advice from people who have started their own production company. Uh, that's what Berman and I have done. I run Rainy Media Inc. And I, you know, I, I learned a lot while setting that up and uh, navigating the waters of a, of a new production company. So I have a lot of advice or some experiences to share with you. So to get in that draw for 30 minutes of free video production coaching, all you have to do is subscribe to the podcast, then rate and review it. Apparently that's the secret to spreading the word about this podcast. We need to get people to rate and review it. And then we get a shot at being in the new and noteworthy section of the iTunes store, which will increase our exposure. Then after you've rated and reviewed the podcast, just drop us an email at videotwins88 at gmail.com or on our Facebook page or on Twitter, and we'll enter you into the draw for the free coaching. Now I'm going to be honest with you, the odds are very good that you might win. That is because so far, no one has entered the contest. So get into it, subscribe to the podcast, rate it and review it, and then let us know via email, Twitter, Facebook. Okay, the odds are very good. Get in on the action, all brought to you by videotwins.com. Okay, on with the show. Faisal, very good buddy of mine. We did this one uh, remotely. He was in uh, KL, Kuala Lumpur, and I'm here in Canada. Um, we always see each other when I get over to, uh, to to Asia, and he's always got so many stories for me, and he's got some great stories in this interview. You know, in, in my production company right now, we're in the midst of talking with a major international broadcaster about producing some branded content for them, and Faisal has been just an amazing resource for me because he's put shows together, he's done big pitches, and he's done big budgets, and there's a lot of mystery around budgets in the TV production world, and he's been able to give me some really great advice and, and knowledge on how that whole thing goes together. And now he's moved on from working for a big broadcaster, and he's established his own production company, and they are doing branded content, and he's directing spots for big companies like Panasonic, Nestle, and Shell. So it's a great interview, a uh, wealth of knowledge, again, that he's going to share with you. Uh, some really great advice, too, for, for people that are just starting out. So here it is, my conversation with TV commercial director Faisal Jais. Mm-hmm. 
also, Faisal, what's your job title? Like, how do you introduce yourself at, at parties? Uh, I, I, pre- <laughs> I basically say that I uh, direct commercials. That's about it. Directing commercials is pretty much your bread and butter of what you do. Nowadays, yes. How long have you been in the industry? Actually, I've been in this industry now for about 17 years. 17 years? Yes, shocking. It means I'm old. Sh- <laughs> is, it, is it something that you knew you would go into, like, from a very young age? Pretty much. I think I would I'd say that I kind of got that filmmaking bug when I was in my uh, early teens, I guess. Yeah? That um, early? Yeah, because, you know, I mean, I grew up watching movies, you know, pretty much... As most of my time was actually spent watching movies, pretty much. Um, really? Yeah, I mean... It always just fascinated me. And then, you know, I grew up in, in L.A., so we're kind of near Hollywood. So it was just that. But at the time, it wasn't the whole the celebrityness of it that got, that got me into it, you know? It was just the fact that watching some of these movies and just trying to figure out, like, how the hell did they, they make these kind of movies? They're, these stories are amazing, you know? With the, and imagine, this is like the 80s, right? We're watching all these movies with what what is now crap visual effects, but back then it was just mind-blowing to see these kind of stories being told. So A lot of stop motion, a lot of scaling of stuff. Yeah, is that pretty what you much. Mean? Pretty, like, it, was, it was all practical, practical effects. effects. Yeah, and yeah. you know, it was just, it just blew my mind how they could actually make, bring these things to life. So it just got me thinking like, you know, I want to do this for a living. <laughs> So you're Malaysian, you're Malay, yep. you're based in KL, yep. but you didn't, you didn't grow up there. You mentioned you grew up in LA. Were you, were you born in America? No, I was born in Malaysia, but my dad was a diplomat. So we moved to the States when I was two. And basically I only left the States the first time around when I was 15. And that was because my, my dad kind of wanted to leave the government sector and go into, into the private sector, start up his own business. So he decided to move back and then, um, Lo and behold, everyone moved back. So then, you know, I mean, being a kid, you didn't know the difference between Malaysia and the States and whatnot, right? I mean, the world wasn't, you don't realize that the world is that big back then. So I always thought, you know, I'll go back. (laughs) You always thought you'd go back to? Yeah, I always thought that, you know, okay, I go back. I mean, I'll I'll go study there and then I'll just live in the States all the way till I'm old. (laughs) Right, right. Did not happen. So did you go to film school in Malaysia then? I did. Um, and, okay, so when I, I actually detoured <laughs> a bit before going to film school because um, obviously when I was in the States, my passion for filmmaking was, was massive. And then I came back to Malaysia and it was a totally different way of living. Um, I mean, you know, the mentality here, the culture is one thing, but it's just the way that people thought about and the way they went about doing things was very different. Um, Malaysia is a culture where tradition is very important. A lot of things are passed down generation to generation, but the problem is like in our schooling system, you know, they're following a system that was established back in the 50s. And you know, 19, you know, early 90s, they were still trying to apply that kind of system in place. So the problem was it was a education system that actually favored you to be a, you know, you, you got to read and memorize things rather than read, understand it, and then give your own, your own understanding of the subject, which is what uh, I learned when I was in the States, right? right. You are taught to, to think. Critical You're thinking. Taught, they, they push yeah, critical exactly. thinking big time. Exactly. Yeah. You're not taught to remember everything. <laughs> yeah. So what's the detour you mentioned then? So the detour was growing up with all these people around you, I kind of gave up a bit on that dream. So the idea was, I love filmmaking, but I also love architecture. I, I really did. You know, when I grew up, when I was a kid, I used to play with Lego all the time. So I would build up a lot of things, whether it's, you know, cars, air jet planes, helicopters, and also even buildings at times. So it was always a passion for me. So it was, it came to a point where I kind of thought, okay, you know what? To follow the dream might not be the best choice. To follow my passion of becoming an architect, that kind of makes sense. It's a professional job, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I thought to myself, okay, I'll do architecture first. I went to architecture school for two years, no, a year. And then um, I got kicked out. 
<laughs> I got kicked out for um, for speaking my mind, so to speak. For critical thinking, something that they yes. banned there. <laughs> yes. Um, and then, um, surprisingly, I got reinstated into the school. I went back for three weeks and I said to myself, you know what, I'm, I'm just kidding myself. I, I can't do this to myself. I have to go and chase my dream. So then right. I basically, I left and I said to myself, okay, I'm going to go back to filmmaking. And that's how I started my crazy journey in this business. And were your parents okay with that? Well, they, the good thing is they were the, they, they're the kind of parents who, I mean, they're Malaysian, yes, but because we all grew up in the States and all, so the way they thought was also different, right? I mean, they also had a very open mind towards things. So my parents were, their concept was, whatever you want to do with your life, it's your own decision, but do it with your own money. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, if you want to screw it up, you can, if you, can, you can screw it up with your own money. But if we're paying for it, no, you got to do what we wanted to. So you had to pay for that next program. And, and did, yes. you study, did you study film or did you, was it film production, film history? So I studied filmmaking. It's called, it's a diploma in filmmaking. That's what I studied. Yeah. Um, and basically it was kind of the weirdest <laughs> filmmaking course that I can think of. Because to be honest with you, I didn't learn much. We had, I mean, the good thing about the course was there was a lot of practical training. Um, you know how usually you go to college and during one of your semesters, you're sent off on internships to either a production house or a TV station or whatnot for one semester. Right. And then you come back with, and that supports your grades for that semester. Whereas in this filmmaking school, because it's, it's actually funded by the National Film Board here in Malaysia. Oh. So what they do is they actually give you the opportunity to work on real productions throughout the whole time that you're doing your whole course. So they would kind of intern you out. <laughs> to get that real world experience. Yes, exactly. So, but the problem was it didn't really sit well with me because the local industry was obviously very local. It was very different to what I was used to. You know, I mean the way the people were, it just wasn't my cup of tea. And you know, right. I mean, they were very big into this whole apprentice mentorship system. And um, it wasn't pretty, you know. Um, you would basically get bullied. I, I think bullied's the right word to use because I, I remember getting a V-mount battery being thrown at me. What? <laughs> because I, yes, because I was slow to, to get uh, one of the other batteries. Wow. Yeah. Was there, what were the repercussions of that? Nothing. You just took it? Nothing. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, it was, it was back then. I mean, back then it was a matter of you're kind of scared to screw up your opportunity, right? Like you only right. get one chance at this. And, you know, you, you have to take the punches, you know, run with it. Do whatever you have to to succeed. And, you know, I mean, that's one thing that I guess was one of the best pieces of education that I actually got from, from my time then because, you know, it's totally different now. <laughs> in what way? Well, you know, obviously I've been in this industry for quite a while and um, I have hired and not really fire. I mean, I, I don't like using that word, but, you know, I've hired and fired many people over the years. And um, with every new generation that comes along, the way that they approach the work, I would say is just totally different from back then. From back then, we went to this business because we wanted to be a part of it. We, there was that burning desire because we loved what the end product could be. Right. Now they get into it because either the money's good or the, there's fame to it or, you know, you can, you can get Instagram likes and all this stuff. It, there's just the motivation is different now. Mm. So when you graduated from this program, mm -hmm. did you get work right away? Um... The good thing was I had already interned on those other productions throughout my, uh, throughout the course, right? So throughout that two and a half years, I had already met quite a few people in the local industry, the local right. TV industry. Um, the problem was for me was, I mean, I was young, I was brash, <laughs> and I thought I was good, right? It happens to all of us, man. Anyone who says that they don't believe they're a good filmmaker, you're just kidding yourself, you know? <laughs> so when I came out, I had great stories in my head. I had all these ideas for scripts and all. And obviously I studied filmmaking. So I said to myself, 
I would never work in television. I will only do films. What happens? My first job was I worked in advertising for a very short time, about a year and a half. And then after that, because I kind of sidetracked as well, I wanted to be in, t in filmmaking, but you know, there's no offers don't come that way. They're all freelance right. jobs, right? Right. So I did this, this ad agency job for about a year and a half. And then what happened was a friend of mine was working with a regional broadcast station called Channel V, which is basically the Asian MTV. Yeah. And they were looking for an associate producer. I still remember this. So I sent in my resume and then I came in for an interview with the supervising producer. And after about half an hour, he said, you're hired. And basically, I worked with that company for four years. So I went from being an associate producer who was on shit pay <laughs> to I, bec I, I was promoted to producer after about a year and a half with the company. And then I stayed there as a producer for about another two years plus. And then um, that basically kickstarted my career. So what kind of shows were you doing? So we had these daily shows. So it's just a, a VJ in front of a green screen, um, you know, introducing this video and then, you know, talking about how Janet Jackson this week was in the news for blah, blah, blah. And all this, you know, we were getting from the internet from either, I can't remember, like E! News or whatever. And then um, my supervising producer at the time said to me, okay, I want you to do this one particular project. It was, a, it was a British boy band. So basically they said that um, they had a show called Speakeasy. Now the format is half an hour show, three segments, and basically it's a recap of the artist's career leading up to the release of that new album. So what you did was they would give you EPKs, music videos of, of the artists, whatever EPK is, is an electronic pre press kit. Right? Yes, which is basically every single album that that these artists would make, they would actually sit down uh, internally with the label and they'll be asked generic questions that can be used by media outlets to promote uh, the album. And that's why they call it electronic press kits rather yeah. than a press release. That's how it is for the TV industry. Um, so yeah, so we'd have EPKs with some generic interviews. We'd have maybe, and you know, these guys were still new at the time. They probably had like two or three music videos. So it's very limited amount of material. And then what happened was they came down to Singapore. So I flew down to Singapore to do an interview with them. And the best part is working at a, a company like Channel V, you basically shoot on XL1s at the time and it's only one cam. So you right. basically set up a, <laughs> an extreme wide shot where you can see everyone, you know, four guys or five guys or whatever. And you just ask away and you only get probably about 40 minutes to ask all your questions. So you basically have to kind of figure out how these questions can then be built into your show. You know, this, this half an hour uh, documentary program about this artist. And um, what happened was I shot the interview, came back. I sat myself down in our edit suite because at the time we had just bought, I mean, the company had just bought this um, old school Apple G5 Mac Pro, I think or G4 or something like that. And um, it was running FCP4 or FCP3, I can't remember. And the best part is he asked me, you know how to edit, right? I said, yeah, but I've never used FCP4. <laughs> what were you using up till then? Were you using Before tape to that, tape been, or? No, 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 uh, well, I mean tape to tape, but I had only been uh, tried out like some of these cheap video editing softwares like Video Maker Pro. So I'm sh I can't remember the names of it at, back right. then because we didn't have access to this kind of stuff, right? Um, and then I remember, because I knew how to edit. I knew how to edit nonlinear. It was just a matter of trying to figure out how to use Final Cut 4. Mm -hmm. So I remember they would give you slots. So you'd have maybe three full days to edit. So that room is yours for three full days. And you know, you work from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. So what I did was the first day, literally, I locked myself in the room and read the manual, trying to figure out all the shortcuts. <laughs> so I knew how to do it, but I didn't know what the shortcuts were. So I had to go through the manual and figure it out. And then day two, I started cutting it. And then day three, day two was offline. Day three was online. 
And basically, at the, the end of day three, my boss came in and saw it, and he said, well, that's pretty good. I didn't expect you to actually pull this off. <laughs> so you're there, how long were you with Channel V? Three and a half, almost four years, I think. Is that when you did a lot of pressers, too? Like, uh, you got to interview a lot of people? You yes, know, I did a lot of junket interviews. And junkets, reason, yeah, that's the word. Yeah, so I did a lot of junkets because, um, so I started off, I made my name with that company by doing these speakeasy shows. So with that first one that I did, it was well-received uh, well within the company. Like, my management actually thought it was quite good. So then they would give me more. So I went from doing a crappy boy band to doing speakeasies on bands like Radiohead, Foo Fighters, mostly rock bands. And then what happened was everyone knew that I was big into movies. So I was given the opportunity to produce a show called The Ticket, which is their flagship movie review show. And I ended up doing almost 200 episodes wow. of The Ticket. Yeah. Half hours. Half hour, every week. Now, would you do the interviews with the uh, filmmakers? Yes. So, you know, I got the opportunity to interview some very interesting people. Well, I got to meet my, my dream duo, Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese. And that was to for the... Yes, together. together. It was the junket for Shark Tale of all movies. <laughs> oh, gee whiz. Yeah, who, who would have thought, right? <laughs> Talk a little bit about junkets. Like, what's it like mm -hmm. from the interviewer or the producer's angle? I mean, you're in a hotel. These, these people, these people, you know, the actors, directors, yep. they're, they, they're sitting in the same hotel room all day. They've just bring in journalist after producer after journalist. Yes, yes. You get like 10 minutes with them. Yeah. What's it like from the producer's standpoint? Like, how did you approach those? Now, I think the studio will tailor the interview more towards your content because now, now they, okay, because um, I actually did a junket for um, Fox, 20th Century Fox, two years ago. That was the last junket I've done. I mean, before that, the last junket I did was during my Channel V days. Uh, but because everyone knew I had done this before, so they actually sent me to do junkets for Taken 3, which was with... Um, Liam Neeson, and then um, the other uh, junket was for Night at the Museum 3, which was Ben Stiller, Sean Levy, Rebel Wilson, um, Ben Kingsley, and o uh, Owen Wilson, and also Dan Stevens, the guy yeah. from Downton Abbey who then transitioned, and now he was like the, recently he was Beauty and the Beast, right? He was the Beast. Right. So you go into this interview, you got seven minutes. How yep. do you prepare your interview to not be asking the same questions that these guys are probably hearing all day? Yeah. So, okay. So basically, I kind of figure out a theme to my whole thing. So, right. for example, Night at the Museum 3 is the third time they've done Night at the Museum. <laughs> so it's, it, my theme was something like, how do you make it different? How do you get people to come and watch this all over again? Yeah. So... I go in, say my first interview is with um, Sean Levy. So I ask him from a filmmaking perspective, what is it in this movie that you're doing differently for audiences? You know, are you, you know, playing this for, are you making this movie for people who are fans of Night at the Museum 1 and 2? Or are you trying to bring in a whole new audiences that you can potentially make a, a fourth sequel, a fifth sequel or whatnot? So it's all about, you have to get that angle. And then... Right. The way I do my interviews, I never write down my... I mean, I, I do write down my questions, but I never look at them. So the questions are kind of set up as a guideline. So it's opening questions that would lead you somewhere. Right. So when, when they answer one particular question, then you know, okay, you're committed to going this way. That's, that's so important because it's the follow-up questions, I think, that you really get... The, the deeper answers you know mm -hmm. a lot of people I, I see them doing interviews they've got their 10 questions they just stick yep. to those even yep. if that previous answer from the guest opened up a else. huge yep. yeah yep. wormhole yeah yeah so what did you ask Robert De Niro and Marty Scorsese I was a fanboy <laughs> I mean the good thing the thing, good thing was I mean it wasn't a serious movie that they made right I mean they were right. basically playing up their their long t long time friendship for a movie like Shark Tale so they were in a very relaxed mood. So, you know, I told them that I was a big fan. You know, I grew up watching your movies and I dreamed of this moment. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, I mean, obviously I was a bit embarrassed. So I had to turn it back to something more serious. So I said, you know, how do you keep this kind of relationship going after all these years? You know, I mean, you guys make movies together. You guys are friends outside of that. And to be honest with you, I know it's not easy to make movies together. You know, you guys yeah. 
there's you know you can just go from best friends to enemies on a dime you know it, it all it needs is just one word or one one sentence to change the whole relationship so it was it, i can't remember what they answered but you know they they gave me the time and day to answer that kind of question well, I'm, I'm sure it was refreshing for them to not be asked, like, how did you come up with the voice for the shark? Yeah, or whatever. yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, because most of the time in your EPKs, they would already have those kind of answers. Right. So that's why I, I never, I mean, I do, that's why I do my research. I mean, I will watch the EPK if they give it to me. And that's why that booklet that they give to you when you first check in, it has some of the questions and, and anecdotes from the talents about the movie. So you have to make sure that you're not going to repeat those kind of questions. Do you ever try to set up a specific soundbite? Like maybe you think, oh, I really, I want to put this in the package, the story, so I'm going to try to ask something that yeah. brings that out and you already know what the answer is going to be. Yeah, of course, of course. I mean, I mean, to be honest with you, I've been doing these kind of interview sessions, which obviously led to the other part of my career later on doing documentary kind of work and all for a long time. So right. for me, it was always about you you have to get the content that you need. At the end of the day, even if it's a great soundbite, but it has nothing to do with what you need, it's useless. Right. You know? you, I mean, that, and that's where the, the producer slash director of you comes out. You know, as a director, you need to know what direction is this whole interview going to take? Because at the end of the day, if he's going to go off talking about, you know, how much he hated working with the other talents and all. I mean, your job is to actually promote the movie, so you don't want it to escalate into a situation where, you know, the studio will call you up and say, what the hell did you do, you know? <laughs> Have you ever had a dud? Like, where you just couldn't um, get anything oh, yeah, yeah, out of anybody? Yeah. The, the best dud that I had, well, I mean, I've had a few over the years, um, but that, that night at the museum junket, Ben Kingsley was the big dud. Oh, really, Sir Ben? For me. Yeah, it was very disappointing for me. Because my opening, I still remember, my opening question to him was, so Sir Ben, what was it like for the other cast and crew, for the other cast members to deal, how was it for them dealing with this cold, dreary London weather? And he just looked at me like I was nuts and he said, we didn't shoot it in London, we shot everything in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> I think the question would have worked the same, the cold, dreary weather of Canada. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I was just, like, okay, that, that, that didn't go well. <laughs> so I had did to you revert. Think, did, cause did you think that they shot it in England and that's, that's why you were no. asking that? No, I actually knew they shot it in Canada. But that's why I thought, because they actually shot some scenes in London. So the idea was, you know, what did your cast members think when they shot it in London with the weather being so shitty? It was li very literal, the question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, he just, because all his scenes were shot in Canada. Oh, yeah. So that's so his he, context. He didn't understand it, and he just went straight in and answered, "Oh, we didn't shoot it at, in London at all. We shot everything in Canada." <laughs> and I was shot like, "Okay, down. this is not going to work." <laughs> Moving on. Next question. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so you wrap everything up at Channel V. Where did you move to next? Um, what happened was I left Channel V um, in weird circumstances as well. <laughs> um, Basically, I quit in protest. Um, really? Because, yeah, because something happened while I was away. I was actually in the States working. Um, so when I came back, some decisions were made while I was away. Basically, when I came back, things were, were spiraling out of control because they made a decision that went against what I wanted, to, what I had already explicitly told everyone not to do. Uh, so basically, they conveniently turned it around and blamed me for all this because, you know, I went away and I wasn't responsible for the show while I was away. <laughs> oh. So yeah, yeah. So, and the best part is I told everyone we're repeating next week because I'm away. You know, we're not going to be able to write new content or produce new content while I'm away. And no, someone decided to basically show off and, and try to step up and, <laughs> and pull off the episode without me. And then it basically backfired. The good thing was just before that, I had actually been given the opportunity to interview one of the, the senior managers at a company called Astro, which is basically one of the biggest um, satellite broadcasters in Asia. Uh, they were the main broadcaster in Malaysia, but in Asia, they're actually very big. So I had the opportunity to meet up with this guy during my last few months at Channel V, which turned out to be my last few months. Um, so there was already interest from them for, to, for me to join Astro. So 
when I came back into this whole shitstorm, I basically told him, you know what, screw this. <laughs> In a huff and puff, I resigned. So this is, is this Rob Middleton that you're talking about? Yes, yes, so that's So Rob right. Middleton, he runs a, inter- a group of international channels at Astro, yes. right? Yes, and, and you know, the best thing was, he was the person who actually launched Channel V all those years ago. Um, so, you know, he, I, I guess we were kind of like kindred spirits in a way. So Rob is a, a real big television veteran himself. Yes. He's kind so of a master of the promos. Pretty much. So basically he's been in this industry in Asia for probably around 25 years or so, or maybe more than that. Yeah. Um, so basically, I mean, the story that I always hear whenever I meet people in this business from other companies is, Every single creative director who is now uh, in the industry used to work for him at one point right. or another. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, that, that's, uh, that pretty much goes to show, like, how influential this guy is. You know, if you work for him, you can become a creative director. So that was what I was thinking. <laughs> really? That's what, then you started to see, okay, I, I, a bit of a path here of where I can work no, towards. No, that only happened, um, that path only happened to be later on. Um, okay. Yeah, because... So, you know, he said to me that he would help me, help tide me over. He'll just give me freelance work. And the best part was, I remember the first job he gave me was to do a contest promo for some kid's channel. It was for, I don't know if it was Disney Junior or Disney XD or something like that. Um, and he paid me, I think around, at the time it was something like 4,000 US dollars to do a promo. And I really? thought it was crazy money. Yeah, because I was on... I'm not kidding. I that time when I was a producer at Channel V, I was making five thousand ringgit, which is now it's like a thousand one hundred US dollars a month. <laughs> was that the yeah, budget that he gave you, or no? That was like we'll give you no, everything he said, else. Okay, then. Yeah, this is the fee for the whole job: seventeen thousand ringgit, start to finish. And it was a, it was a shoot. No, no, no. It was an it was a graphic promo. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so I did one of those a month for three months, and I made crazy money, right? <laughs> Even better than what, what I asked for. <laughs> yeah, that's the other funny thing about television is often yes. they won't take you on full-time at a high salary, but they'll certainly pay you freelance. Yep, yep, that's true. So did you mainly do promos for Rob at Astro? Okay, so what happened was um, when I eventually joined Astro, it was, I didn't work with Rob. Um, Astro had set up a business in Indonesia. So they were launching all these new channels out of Indonesia. So one of the channels that I worked on was a kid's channel. Apparently they bought the rights to it from India. It's uh, based on an Indian channel called Hungama, I think. So we had somewhat of a template to the channel, but that's all we had. We had barely any graphics package. We had a lot of content. So we had a lot of DigiBetas or, or beta tapes with all these shows, and we had to basically create a Barker channel. Have you, heard, have you ever heard of that term? A Barker channel? A, a Barker channel. So, okay, sometimes if you watch um, television, from time to time, there will be a channel that pops out on a new number, and it will just play you previews of what's going to come onto the channel before the launch. Okay. It just basically gives the audiences a sense of what this channel is going to be. Right. Based on okay. the kind of content that it will carry. And it's usually free. Yes, exactly. So yeah. they asked me to create the Barker channel for this um, kids channel as a tester to see if audiences are actually tuning in. And then um, once they were, so we did, I did the Barker channel. And the best part is Astro did not give me any internal support to do these channels. That's the best part? Yeah, because, you know, I'm launching a channel for you. But you won't even let me use, because, you know, I mean, it's a big, massive company. They've got, you know, I think at the time, four or five audio suites. They've got 10 offline edit suites or what, whatnot, you know, and they've got a full graphics team and all. So they didn't want to give me access to this team because for them, it's basically categorized under the Astro Indonesia business. So it's a different business altogether. You have to use your own, you have to get your own facilities. You have to use your own production companies to do all this stuff. Really? So I thought, yeah, I thought it was weird. You know, I'm launching yeah. a channel for you, but you don't even want to give me any internal resources. So I basically, because I'd been given a budget to do all this. So I went out and found, um, with the career director who was working in Indonesia, we found this um, 
uh, production house here in KL who was willing to give us decent rates and um, yeah, it basically took off. So basically these guys would put together everything for me. So this is where I kind of transitioned from being someone who had to do the work to someone who managed the work. So that was where I kind of figured out how to really be a producer per se, you know? Right. Yeah. So, and, and outside of the bubble of the broadcaster too. Yes, exactly. So then I become the client. Yeah. Totally different experience. Um, so yeah, so I launched the channel in about three months. Um, so basically I'm the only person on this side, uh, you know, actually sorting out everything. Um, and then a week before the channel launched, then they hired a channel manager, a marketing team. A week before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. After all the hard work is done before that, then uh. all these guys come into play. Um, and yeah, well, the channel went, became the number one kids channel within a month. In Indonesia? In Malaysia and Indonesia. And because some of, the, some of the promos that we were doing were just different to what was being done in general at the time. And because of that success, then they said, can you kind of apply this to some of our other channels? So they asked me to relaunch other channels. And then I went from running one channel, doing promos for one channel, to suddenly doing promos for like five or six channels. And it was just me and my production assistant and my creative director who's based in Indonesia, kind of overseeing everything that I do here. Did you like that work, launching channels? It was different. You know, I come from a channel that, that showcases tits and ass <laughs> to suddenly <laughs> launching a kid's channel. So it right. was just a different experience. You know, at the end of the day, I do love the work. So, you know, whether it's, you know, kid's channel or sports channel or movie channel, you know, I, I still want to have to be able to experience all that. Because launching channels is very, very different than your original passion for kind of yes. telling stories in, in movie form. Exactly. So, yeah, basically I was screwed already, right? <laughs> <laughs> so at that point, it was kind of, it, I still looked at it as a job, you know, yeah. I'm paid to do this job. But the good thing was, when they basically gave me the opportunity to set up a promo team. So then I'm managing all these, these producers, right? These writers, these editors and whatnot. And then we started off with just doing promos. I mean, it was really the, the scripts and the editing that was making it good. And then they gave us the opportunity to start shooting stuff. And that's where I went back, you know, my, my filmmaking yeah. background came, finally came into play after all these years. <laughs> Um, and yeah, we would shoot some pretty interesting things. You know, they would let us go wild because I guess in a way, because I was running things point for the Malaysia team at that point and my ideas were just wild. I mean, it was very different from what was being done right. traditionally in television here in Malaysia at the time. So every successful promo that we made basically translated to successful ratings for the show. So when they saw that kind of success, they kind of gave me a bit more trust. So it kind of emboldened me to make different choices on how we would approach all this stuff. And that's where it kind of dawned on me like, okay, so this is what a creative director does. Ah. That's how the, you know, it, I've always said it, to, people have asked me like, how did you know that you, you know, that you were good at something? I said, to be honest with you, it just kicks in one day. You know, you yeah. do it long enough, you do it well enough, so one day it will just dawn on you. So after you launched all these channels mm -hmm. for Astro, mm -hmm. uh, where, did, where did you go to next? Um, okay, so what happened was, because um, I was with Astro for a very short time, about a year and a half, I think. Um, so in that time, I went from being alone <laughs> to having a PA and having a creative director who operated out of Indonesia to having a team of 33 of us when I left. Wow. So, you know, I mean, I literally built that team from scratch. And then what happened was, um, you obviously know of Promax, right? Yes. The awards for promos around the world, really, yes, right? Correct. There's uh, the American ones and as well as the Asian ones. Yeah. So, um, in my short time with Astro, I won quite a few Promaxes, um, some at the world level and some at the Asian level. So, uh, what happened was, towards the end of my time, I went to my second Promax, which was in Singapore. So, you know, the conference is say three days or two days, I think. Um, 
so day one is supposed to be all the conferences, I mean, all the, the talks and whatnot. And then the second day will be the award ceremony. And then obviously there's a great after party after that. So on the first day, we showed up for the first um, speaking engagement because we actually knew the guy. And then we all went out for drinks. <laughs> we basically abandoned the conference for drinks. Um, that's what you do. I think that's what most people do at these yes. conferences. We went to a bar. It's, I think it was the Fullerton in Singapore. And um, it was a rooftop it's bar. And very nice bar. Yes. And so it's outdoors. And there was a long table with about three or four people there. There was a senior producer from AXN, Ashok Miranda, who was the creative director of Disney, based in Singapore. There was um, Orion Ross, who was the creative director for Turner. And then there was um, one other guy who I can't remember. Okay, so we, we're sitting down, we're chit-chatting and all, and then suddenly Ashok, who's sitting right across from me, so he says, so Faisal, tell me a bit more about Chiria. Chiria is the name of this kids' channel that I launched back in the day. And I said, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's fine. We're doing these kind of numbers now, blah, 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 blah. And he said, what would you feel about doing that for me? I'm like, what do you mean? Uh, where are you from? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know who these guys are, right? Because <laughs> at the time, I just was introduced as, hi, I'm Ashok, hi, I'm Orion. You know, we don't bring out our business cards and all. Right. And yeah, then he told me that he was with Disney. So he liked what I did for uh, the Kids Channel in Malaysia. So he would he wanted to know if I was interested to move to Singapore. And I, unfortunately, I shot him down right there and then. I said, you know, I came from a channel that advertises tits and ass and music to doing kids. <laughs> I think that's enough kids for me for a lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not something that you really want to make a habit of if you're trying to advance your career. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So then um, I was talking to the other guys. I was talking to Orion. Orion seemed genuinely interested to bring me to Hong Kong. And then uh, what happened was another guy came and joined the table and he sat down right beside me um, and he was listening to the conversation. Then he turned to me and said, Faisal, screw them. You don't want to work with any of these guys. You want to work for me. And I said, who are you? And he was the, f the first person at that table to actually bring out his business card. And he put it on the table and it said, Bill McQueen, creative director, National Geographic. And I was sold, yeah. to be honest with you. <laughs> Really? Yeah, to be honest with you, I was sold there and then. I didn't care what they did, <laughs> what I was going to do, I was sold. Really? Because of the brand, National Geographic? Yes. You know, I grew up reading Nat Geo magazines and all as well for their photography, right? So <laughs> right. as soon as I saw that yellow border, I was sold. Little did you know, though. Yes. Little did you know <laughs> the uphill battle that yep. it would be working for that broadcaster. Yeah. Yep. Interesting, interesting. So you guys talked and... Uh, you came over, because I was already at um, Nat Geo at that time. Yeah, you, you came in probably, what, three months or yeah. so before I did? Yeah. Or more than uh, that? Uh, not much, not much. And they did a little switcheroo with you. Yes. They didn't bring you in to work on National Geographic to start. Exactly. So they gave me senior producer. And at the time, it was just National Geographic, right? It wasn't, uh, it wasn't yet Fox International Channels. Right. So it was still just NGC. So senior producer, NGC. I come in. I'm looking, and, I, and they, they sit me, set me up at this um, desk. Right in front of me was our production manager, Maria. To my left was Quen Wong, who was another senior producer, NGC. And I'm looking at it like, huh? <laughs> why, are they, why are they two you know, senior producers, NGC? And then I get told that, you know, you're not going to do NGC, you're going to do Fox Crime. <laughs> You're going to launch a new channel for us. Yep, yep. <laughs> so, yeah, but, you know, at the end of the day, it was just a matter of, you know, being a part of the organization that, that appealed to me. You know, how it, you know, obviously nothing is as, as good as it's promised to you, right? Sure, sure. Yeah, hey, so it wasn't a bad gig to start. I mean, that was a brand, Fox Crime, that you, you could yep. certainly have a lot more fun with than National yes. Geographic. Yes. And you got to do some pretty incredible promos and that for them. I mean, maybe nobody was watching, but... Yep, yep. You know, you, 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 had, you were in the door at a big yes. brand, a couple of big brands there. And, yeah, and from know. a technical perspective, it was, it was actually fulfilling for me because I was actually doing good work. Yes. Um, and, you know, I mean, I came from Astro's promo department where we were doing something like each channel, we're doing about 50 fresh promos a month. And I had, 
when I left, I had something like nine channels or 10 channels under me. So we're looking at 500 fresh promos being done by a team of 33 to being the senior producer for a channel that only makes five promos in a month. <laughs> <laughs> so in a way, I was kind of, I felt a bit underutilized because, you know, I mean, sure. I was so used to doing so many things and suddenly it's just, oh, just this, okay. But, you know, I mean, the idea behind that was given more time, you would actually be able to give more thought to do things, you know. I mean, you would actually come up with something better, yeah. which, you know, in a way, it can work that way, but in a way, it's also a waste of time. I always find, like, deadlines or limitations can bring out good stuff creatively as well. Yes, exactly. So you, you, you had an interesting opportunity because it was definitely the shift techn technologically was happening. There was a big shift but you got to shoot a couple of promos on 16 millimeter or super 16. Yep. I mean, so, okay. this may be a novelty, <laughs> but this, in my mind, yeah. is pretty cool because this does not happen anymore. Mm -hmm. And you know what makes it even cooler? The fact that we had no money. No money. <laughs> we had no little money to no money <laughs> and we could still pull it off. And you know, I remember when I proposed to our boss at the time and he said, you know, why the hell would you shoot on film? You know, just grab one of these guys, shoot it on, you know, the Panasonic or whatever the crap it was at the time. Yeah. And I said, no, you know, you look, you look at all these channels, you know, the content on Fox Crime, it's actually shot on film. You know, it has that cinematic look, you know, our promos need to be just as cinematic as these, uh, the content that we're trying to promote. Absolutely. And he, and he didn't, and to his credit, he didn't say no. He said, figure out how to do it within this budget. Yeah. And, you know, obviously the budget is shit. And, you know, I come from Malaysia, right? With the land of the cheap. Yeah. <laughs> we will pull favors or... or, or <laughs> beg, borrow, and steal. Yeah, yeah, beg, borrow, and steal. And um, we were able to pull off... I know, I can't remember. It was like... Um, the first one was that prime crime, which really <laughs> got everyone buzzing, right? Yeah. And, you know, I think we shot that for, what, like 7,000 US dollars? Which is unheard of for right. a promo. You know, I mean, to shoot on on film it's ridiculous right because of all the processing and everything yes. afterwards it's so cost yep. heavy so yeah i mean uh, that's that's one of the things that i will remember the most about that place because it was still a business where quality came first yeah you know despite despite the fact that we all you know there was a lot of people in the company who just cared about making money they still gave you the opportunity to do things like this if you could do it if you could bring it in on budget yes. and the yes. budgets were you know insanely low then they would, yeah. they would give you free range which was great yeah mm -hmm. as a creative person that was great so you produced a lot of promos what would mm -hmm. you say is the key to a good promo script script no matter what script first it's yeah. concept and script i mean the thing about promos is the difference between a good promo producer and uh, you know the, the your your average promo producer and a good promo producer is the average promo producer will want to do something that's cool the good promo producer will want to do something that's going to deliver on the message of whatever he's supposed to do. He always sees the bigger picture. Right. You know, you always think about end game first. You don't think about, you know, okay, how do I start this? No, you see the end game from the start. End game you know, is, you, is getting people to tune into that show. Yes, yes. What is the impact that you want to give? That's the question that you have to ask first. So, you know, even when I do commercials now, whenever I get a board, you know, as soon as I see the board, I read the board start to finish, then I say, okay, what is the impact that I want people to have from this? And then I will build my story back. So, you know, I'm kind of working backwards. Whereas, yeah. you know, someone who is purely creative doesn't understand the business side of it or the production side or the producer side of it. They will want to see something that's cool, something that's relevant, you know, it's different. So you work for uh, Fox Crime, Nat Geo, Fox channels in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. Was it two years? It was two, just over two years. And then they send you to Malaysia. They yes. send you back. Yes. Return to sender. Screwed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was potentially one of the saddest moments of my life. <laughs> really? Yeah, because we, it was for us too. We, we knew we were, we, we missed you. Yeah, we because, you okay, time. you look at it from my perspective, like I had worked so hard to get out to test myself at that regional level. And then yeah. you get sent back. You know, it's like, I mean, I never believed that they were sending me back because I wasn't good enough. No, no. They were very blunt and upfront to me about their reasons for sending me back to Malaysia, which is because of my previous experience with Astro. So obviously I had that, you know, 
extended relationship with these guys that I could actually potentially use to my benefit with Fox. Right, because at the time, so, so Fox International Channels, they own all these channels, mm -hmm. but they've got to get these channels on the distributors, right? Mm -hmm. the, the cable and telecommunications. And Astro was one of those companies. Mm -hmm. And so the relationship between Fox and Astro is uber important. Uber, yes. uber important if you want to get your channels into people's homes. And at the time, we were Fox was going through a huge localization shift, right? Yep. Where they wanted local offices, local creative teams, local productions. And so, yeah, I mean, it was a business decision. It was like, it was the, the best decision for them to make. It wasn't fun for us yes. as your coworkers and your teammate uh, and a buddy. But honestly, the bottom line was it was the best decision for them to yep. send you back to head up production, the Malaysian office. Yes. The good part about that second time around was I already had that experience of starting something from scratch. But this time, the good thing is I actually had team members. You know, we had a head of marketing, we had a country manager, we had a, another marketing manager, we had a sales manager. So we actually had a support unit. Whereas when I started that team at Astro, it was just me and my PA. So the good thing was we were able to do so many things in a year that probably in the last three or four years, nothing had been done before. So, you know, you were able to see the business grow from every single aspect, you know, from choosing where the office is going to be, because you have to figure out where are the agencies, who are the clients, yeah. where are you going to go? You know, you don't want to set up your office at the fanciest building in town, but it's like half an hour or an hour away by car to go see your client and you have to deal with them every single day, right? So from making that kind of a decision to making a business decision on what kind of money you're going to spend on rent because you know, you have to segregate that money for your equipment, for your staffing and whatnot. And then dealing with the client on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, managing all the minor little issues to get things moving forward. So it basically went, it just opened my eyes to how a major international business is run. And also, how do you put together a production company? Yes. Yes, exactly. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Because when we were in Hong Kong, yes, we're, the company's very open, but you know, you're, you're not so privy to all the sensitive information that's going on, right? Because, yes. you know, we're, we're, we're not exactly super senior management. Um, but then when you go to a market like Malaysia, because you need that kind of info from senior management in Hong Kong, you need that info to actually make a decision on how to implement it in Malaysia. So then suddenly I became someone who was actually privy to all this information. I was getting CC'd in these emails and all, and it, right. it was kind of cool, right? <laughs> Well, talk about a crash course, like I say, in starting a production company. Yeah. Because that's ultimately what you went on to do. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that was, um, it was, it was a very tough decision to make. And I remember this friend of mine who was pestering me to do it for the longest time. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you hesitate so long to leave? I mean, because at the time that you were at the office in Malaysia, it, it was pretty messy. Yeah. Things were not going well. Yep. Um, Fox is a difficult company to work for, mm -hmm. uh, bottom line. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's great work that you do, but mm -hmm. it is difficult environments and systems and processes yep. and sometimes people. Yep. So you were ready to leave, but you were hesitant. You know, when I was younger, people asked me, how come you never opened up a company? And I said, how can I open up a company if I don't even have the context to get business for, right? Yeah. So that's yeah. why you wanted to make sure that you did the time. You know, you you built a network of um, people that you can trust and that you can work with. Um, so what happened was finally after, I think, yeah, my baby was like six to eight months of talking. I just had enough. I, you know, I've been with the company for six, just over six years at that point. And I thought, you know, that's long enough. <laughs> yeah. And um, I decided to quit because you told me to many times. <laughs> and, um, at jump, first, jump. Yeah, but first I didn't jump because I was going to open up a company. I jumped because right. I thought, okay, I want to take a break. I really yeah. wanted to take like six months off. So, you know, I put aside a bit of money and I thought to myself, okay, six months, I am just going to, you know, kind of just glide through life and see what comes my way. Then what happened was obviously the word started getting around that, you know, I had actually left NetGeo. Uh, or Fox. And um, most of these people who have known me for a while then suddenly called me up and started asking me, you know, can you do this for us? Can you do that for us? And that's basically how the next phase of my career started, which is setting up my own business. <laughs> yeah, I remember talking to you about this and you kind of pushed back. You were not convinced. I still think you were uh, 
hoping that another broadcaster, another re- uh, local broadcaster, was going to maybe take you in there too as well. Yes, you were yes, talking yes, with them yes. for about a year yes. or something crazy. Yes. And I just kept saying, man, just do it, just do it. And it did. you didn't do it, it happened. You, yes. Before you know it, exactly. I think after a year, you were a full-fledged production company. Yeah. So, again, I mean, some things just happen. Like, like uh, I said earlier, sometimes it just dawns on you, right? And you have yeah. to accept it. So, yeah. So, after I've been, you know, uh, semi-freelancing, but actually officially billing as a production house for about six months to eight months, um, then what happened was um, the clients basically just kept on coming back, you know, and they basically, because it was a bit weird because I was running the business out of my apartment. <laughs> and I Sounds was, familiar. Yeah, and yeah. I was doing some pretty big stuff, you know. I was doing some pretty high-end stuff for a company that's operating out, out of an apartment. So it, it got to a point where, because I'm very upfront with my clients, as you know. Uh, most people yeah. that I meet and everyone knew that I was running it out of my apartment and they said how can you be doing this with us you know you should set up a, an office like you know you're you're big enough <laughs> if you think people look down at a home office in North America oh my gosh they, they just can't accept a home office in Asia yes right? exactly it's all about having that face and yes and that now I don't want to gloss over this one year transitional period when you quit Nat Geo mm-hmm. and Fox mm-hmm. and started your production company because yep. you know it wasn't smooth you had a lot of self-doubt well I never I never had any doubts about what I was doing but the biggest problem that I faced within that first year was the fact that I wasn't getting paid on time and this is the biggest yes. problem that you'll face you know in this business you will never get yeah. paid on time especially in Asia <laughs> yeah you know I, I still remember having this conversation with you I went from having you know I went down to having something like a thousand US dollars left in my account to tide me over while waiting for for payments from clients. And it is tough when you have to output money yes. to sort of finance or backroll a production. And then I, I remember you telling me sometimes it's six months before you get paid. Yes, exactly. I mean, that was, to be honest, I mean, number one was getting business, right? That's always the problem. But number two is actually bankrolling it. That yeah. was always the two biggest concerns that I had with running a production house here. Wow. But you yeah. kept at it. Yeah. And you, you, got, you finally got over that hump financially literally like after that two week period where I kind of doubted what the hell I was doing and then everything came into play it just fell into place because suddenly all the outstanding payments started coming in at the same time and then there was enough cash reserve to actually move forward with other jobs and then it kind of stabilized very quickly from then how has your background in promos helped you transition into TV commercials because in promos we work within that 30 or 60 seconds yeah so the advantage that I have based on you know, what the producers and EPs for um, the other production houses are telling me is some of the new directors that they meet, because I'm not young, right? I've been in this business for a long time, but I've only been in commercials for pretty officially kind of three years now. Yeah. So they say that they've got directors who've been in the industry for 10 years, but because they don't edit their own spots, they just shoot it. They only concentrate on the performance and, you know, they, they leave the, the visuals totally up to the DP. And, you know, this is, this is something that wow. I deal with a lot. I've, I've seen this a lot, whereas in, in which the director really has no control over his visuals. He really, you know, just hopes for the best from the DP. So that's why they hire the best DP they can hire. Right. And this is nothing new, right? All across the world, it's like this. Right, right. And um, they said, you know, I mean, the biggest advantage that I had was all these promos. I did it from start to finish, from script to planning to edit to delivery. So, um, but, you know, I mean, I can manage the project obviously from start to finish within any given timeline because you know sometimes we do promos we have to pull it off within a week or whatever right for commercials to pull off a commercial within a week is you know it's just crazy talk um and what happened was i had a job that i did two years ago for the phone brand huawei and you know the client i met the client on friday i prepped on monday i shot it on tuesday i edited offline online on Wednesday I presented it back to client on Thursday and on Friday I gave them the final material and it was a full-blown 60-second commercial which cost a lot of money wow yeah so that's what the advantage of working on promos is you know you you have to work I mean obviously from a storytelling perspective you've only got 30 seconds or 20 seconds or 60 seconds or 40 seconds or whatever you have a limit so you have to approach doing these commercials from both the production standpoint and also from the storytelling aspect, 
you know your limits so you can always work backwards you're not kind of second guessing and hoping that the editor can cut down the scene like this to make sure it fits and all that stuff and that's the experience you bring because you cut your own spots too yes yes and you know obviously i've edited thousands of promos like literally i would say thousands of yeah so looking back at your career and where you started mm. do you think there's a, a feature film on the horizon or have you have you put that away we've talked about this for for many for a, a lot we always talk times. about this yeah <laughs> yeah because to be honest with you i still harbor dreams of making my feature yeah um the only problem is i feel that i don't want to waste it waste that opportunity because okay to make a movie in malaysia it's you know i mean it would be for me it's kind of like i'm settling for something like I'm, I'm making a movie just for the sake of making a movie if i really wanted to make a movie i mean i grew up watching movies in in hollywood you know all these yeah. ho- small little hollywood movies that is my definition of movies so you feel you've got to get to america and make a movie exactly interesting i feel if i only make one movie you know before the day i die it has to be that kind of a movie i can't settle with making a small little indie movie in malaysia where you know it might win tons of awards but no one really watches it why would you make yeah. a movie that no one will watch right. your your job is a story we're all storytellers that's what we're supposed to do we are supposed to tell stories to engage people and entertain people i'm totally against all these artsy fartsy filmmakers <laughs> i'm, I'm self indulgent filmmakers yeah, who just do it just for the sake of you know oh it's 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 my art yeah that doesn't that doesn't apply to me at all yeah. any advice or tips for aspiring directors or people want to do what you do um okay most most importantly you have to have a very thick skin <laughs> yeah 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 i you, would agree with that you know for aspiring filmmakers now they're coming into the industry at the, the 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 funniest time because you know they're dealing with people who are all softies right no one is going to be as hard as you, on you guys as they were with me back in the day you know right you're not, you're not going to get v mounts thrown at you you're not they even have to have a safe space on set. Yeah, and you're not probably not even going to get shouted at because you showed up late on set anymore. So you know that's the most important thing I, I have to say. Then have that thick skin, and you have to have that attitude of you ha- you are willing to do anything and everything to make the most of that opportunity. Yeah. Because because okay, I mean, if you don't have that kind of mentality now, imagine when you've been in the industry two or three years. Okay, say for you started off, you work for someone. And then you decide to branch out on your own, then you're going to be screwed because you don't have that mentality where you're willing to do anything to get the job because it's hard to get jobs out there. And if you're not willing to go the extra mile for your clients, you're not going to get those jobs, and you'll end up being broken, you know, starving. <laughs> yeah, or having to leave the industry. Yes, exactly. You know, being forced to get a full-time job again. So you have to be thick-skinned. You have to have that never say die attitude. You have to be willing to to go the extra mile. I mean, obviously, don't do stuff like casting couch and all that crap, right? <laughs> <laughs> Is that still but, a thing? Do you think? I think so. I, I, think I never so. got. I, I never. never yeah, got to I wish I. That I wish any... I got to experience that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have a couch. I didn't get anybody to ask me to lay down on a couch. Yeah, so I wish I had that experience. But yeah, you know, <laughs> that's great. Well, Faisal, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yep. We end off every episode with a, a bit of production slang. Okay. So I'm going to throw out a term, and you're going to give me the definition if you know it. It's going to make me sound like a fool. Okay, what is it? What is it? <laughs> Abby Singer. Abby Singer? Abby Singer. You, the context, you may hear it like this. Okay, this is the Abby. This is the Abby. We're on the Abby Singer. I've never heard that term before. I think I'm like 0 for 5 with guests knowing production slang. The Abbey Singer, here's the definition, the Abbey mm-hmm. Singer is the second to last shot of the day. And it's named after this old-time assistant director, this old-time AD, who would always go around and yell out that they were on the second last shot of the day okay. so that the grips and electrics and everybody could start wrapping everything okay, up. Okay, 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 okay. So they get a head start on wrapping yep, yep, for the yep, day. Yep, yep. The Abbey. Okay, so in Malaysia we have this term called Barana. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> and so that let, means... me, let me give you a term today. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so Barana means to give birth. Okay, <gasps> it literally means to give birth. So on set, the agency, agency so will suddenly... That is so appropriate. Yeah, the agency will suddenly say, can we do one 
from from this angle where the talent smiles can we do one where the talent gives us more teeth so suddenly from your board probably has like 25 frames it's become like 50 frames so it's all birthing new frames so we call it brana the brana here comes the brana. client with another brana yeah b-e-r-a-n-a-k oh perfect well faisal this has been awesome thank you no thanks for having me it was it was it was fun to be a part of this so there you have it Faisal Jice on the show. You can check out his work. His reel is down in the show notes. I want to thank you very much for tuning in and listening. And please, if you don't mind, take just a moment to rate and review the show. It'll really help us out. Until next time, I'm Dean Rainey, and we'll see you again. Hold up. 